Zechariah chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading today in uh, verse 9. And uh, let me just say up front, um, we're also going to be taking the the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that points to the believer's union uh, with the Lord Jesus. But it's more than that, it also points us to the future hope that we have of eating with our Lord Jesus in His future kingdom. Uh, Each time we participate in this sign, we do so uh, looking forward to our future hope in Christ. Well, in our passage today, Zechariah, he participates in another sign, and it's a sign that was supposed to point him and Israel to the future. In fact, there are some things developed here that if they didn't happen, even we would have nothing to celebrate this morning at the Lord's table. Zechariah develops the work of a particular individual called the branch. And the work of that branch becomes the basis for all we celebrate today as believers. The work of the branch actually gives us a seat at the Lord's table, both now and in His kingdom to come. So I want you to to hear the sermon in that light today before we uh, eat and and drink together. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne." And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if... You will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you uh, for your word. And, and I pray that it would point us to the future hope we have in Christ. And, and also give us a reason to celebrate this morning as we, as we take the Lord's Supper. Um, Father, Christ is the true vine. Uh, and we are the branches. He who abides in Christ, and Christ in him, 
will bear much fruit. For apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Um, So help us abide now. Help me abide as I proclaim your word. And would you cause there to be much fruit born uh, for your glory this morning. We ask it in, in Christ's name. Amen. So, we made it through all eight visions. And still in one piece. And I'm encouraged so far by this uh, trek through, through Zechariah. It's, it's been humbling to sit down on Tuesday morning and, and read over the text for the next Sunday. And going, what in the world is he talking about? Um, but the Lord's been incredibly faithful, and I'm excited to, to keep walking through this book together. The passage before us actually picks up on a theme we already covered in the night visions. Uh, we were introduced to this figure called the branch back in chapter 3, uh, verse 8. And there, the branch uh, was going to be this, this priest king who comes uh, to establish a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins... And then also to bring in uh, the Father's abundant kingdom. Today, the ministry of the branch gets expanded to even greater heights. And rather fittingly, he sticks it at the end of the night visions to show that everything that has gone before is really pointing to this uh, one unique individual and his kingdom. The passage develops in three basic parts, I think. And they they go something like this, the crowning of a priest, the coming of the branch, and the condition of obedience. The crowning of a priest, the coming of the branch, and the condition of obedience. So let's take these one one at a time. First of all, the crowning of a priest. God would often have his prophets uh, dramatize his, his message. Uh, Of course, it always came then with God's interpretation of what each prophet was doing. But but take Isaiah, for instance. Uh, Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against Egypt and Cush. It was one dramatization. Uh, Ezekiel had to lie on his left side for 390 days and then again on his right side for 40 days as a sign that Jerusalem would be sieged. And that's not to mention that he had to cook his food over burning dung. Okay? I think Zechariah definitely gets the better part here. He gets the better drama. In verses 9 to 11... Uh, Zechariah is supposed to dramatize God's message by crowning Joshua the high priest. But even the way that it's told is quite remarkable. So in verse 10, he's he's supposed to take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who've just returned from Babylon. And if you remember, Babylon is enemy territory. So there's, they, these, he has to take these guys from Babylon. He's supposed to take from them silver and gold in order to make a crown for the Lord. Now, this is pretty significant. These men have just been rescued out of captivity. They, 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 they come out of captivity with silver and gold. And now they're going to use that silver and gold to to make something for the Lord. 
Where have we seen this before? In the Exodus. God rescues his people from captivity in Egypt. Exodus 12.35 says they come out with all kinds of silver and gold and then they use the silver and gold to then build the tabernacle for the Lord. In other words, God is making a statement here in the way he is acting once again. He's basically saying that the next phase to rescue his people and bring in his kingdom is already underway. Hey, we've plundered the enemy. Now it's time to build. Now it's time to show them yet another stage in the establishment of God's kingdom. And so he gets Zechariah to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, it's true that the high priest in Israel wore a, 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 a turban. Uh, you can even see that by glancing back at chapter 3, verse 5, um, where they put a turban on Joshua's head. Uh, and on top of that turban was a, a kind of a golden crown. But the Hebrew wording and the context before us has a different sort of crown in mind than the crown uh, on the high priest uh, that the high priest normally, normally would wear. This crown uh, regularly appears in context of royalty. Zechariah is placing the crown of a king on Joshua's head, which is rather peculiar because uh, the high priest doesn't wear the crown of a king because the high priest doesn't usually serve as a king. Kingship belonged to another in Israel, and especially to someone from David's family line. But here's the point of crowning Joshua. God was pointing his people to a king who would also function as a priest, or or flip it around. God was pointing his people to a priest who would also reign as king. He's pointing the people to a future priest king. That's what this drama is about. Uh, We know he's talking about someone beyond Zechariah's day because Joshua is is functioning here much like he functioned back in chapter 3, verse verse 8, as as a type of of someone else who's coming in the future, the the branch uh, in particular. Uh, So he's, he's functioning the same way here as a type of the future branch. Uh, Moreover, verse 14, uh, it suggests that the crown was to remain in the rebuilt temple under Zerubbabel as an ongoing reminder of the coming branch and his future temple. And then, of course, wherever we find this one called the branch in Scripture, it's normally in association with a future uh, Messiah figure who establishes God's kingdom in full. So I take this crowning of Joshua by Zechariah to point to the future and in particular to point to the role uh, the branch would play in establishing God's final kingdom as a priest king. Which brings us now to the second part of of our passage, the coming of the branch. The coming of the branch. The crowning of the priest, that drama, it points us to the coming of the branch. And that's the way God explains the drama in verses 12 to 13 and part of verse 15. And if you'll notice, there are at least uh, five promises bound up 
with this uh, coming branch. So promise number one, uh, verse 12, uh, says, uh, He shall branch out from his place. Or another way to translate it, He shall branch out from beneath him. Uh, The language is that of a king's son taking his father's place on the throne. And there's some background to this. You may recall uh, that in Isaiah 10, you get this, uh, uh, you get this picture where, where God has basically uh, leveled all of the Assyrians uh, like a lumberjack levels a forest. He's, he's chopped down the Assyrians. Uh, all that you see are these stumps everywhere. And then Isaiah 11 comes in with this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It shall go out. Well, Jesse was King David's father, and for a branch to come from his roots was for a descendant to come and replace David. And and as the prophets continue picking up this language, they're, they're saying that, uh, that, this, that there's a future king that's coming to replace all the sons of David who've, who've sat on the th- throne. One, one guy's coming. He's, gonna, he's going to sit on the throne. Jeremiah 23.5, for instance, uh, uh, speaks of this same branch coming to reign as the new King David. He would replace the ones prior, and he would be the one that would actually restore righteousness and peace to the land. And so for this branch to go out uh, from his place is for Zechariah to essentially be saying that a new son of David is still coming. Promise number two. Again, in verse 12. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And if you're wondering why it's then repeated immediately again in verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. It's not merely for emphasis. We have to remember that back in chapter 4, verse 9, the people were told that Zerubbabel would build the temple. If Zerubbabel is going to build the temple, why does it say here that the branch is going to build the Lord's temple? Well, some have suggested that if Zerubbabel is the one building the temple in chapter 4, then the branch in chapter 6 must be Zerubbabel. But the whole point of the passage is to point us to a figure well beyond Zerubbabel. Uh, Moreover, it's clear from chapter 3, verse 8, that the branch is someone different than Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel never removes the people's iniquity, which we see in chapter 3, verse 8, the branch does. Zerubbabel never brings God's abundant kingdom, which we see in chapter 3, verse 8, the branch does. And Zerubbabel isn't even the one serving as a type in this specific passage. Joshua is. He's the one with the crown. Then what's the point of the repetition in verse 13? It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. The point is that he's speaking of an entirely different temple. The completion of Zerubbabel's temple was not the end of the story. It was only one stage in the story that pointed to a much greater stage in the story. 
namely this branch's temple. The branch would build the true temple of the Lord. He would build the temple that all the other temple copies pointed to. In the same way that the prophets before Zechariah promised a future temple, one that would totally eclipse even the second temple that Zerubbabel built, Zechariah is doing the same here. He's just adding that the future temple would be built by the branch. The branch would come and build the end-time temple of God's kingdom. Promise number three. We get this in verse 13. He shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he's not he's not just coming as a king in David's family line. He will be a king that bears royal honor and and rules on God's throne. We get this idea of of bearing royal honor or or bearing majesty, having majesty throughout throughout the Psalms as it's speaking of God's uh, anointed king, especially uh, David. Uh, Psalm 21, verse 5, for example, uh, says, The king's glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Uh, And this is a really big deal throughout the Psalms. Um, Because uh, during the exile, one of the things that God uh, did was he removed the majesty of the king in David's line. And so you get to Psalm 89, for example, verse 44, and uh, it leaves you with this agonizing lament over the throne of David. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 44, you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. He shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. In other words, that throne that I cast down into the dust and removed all of its glory, I'm going to set it up again. And the branch is going to rule on that throne. And he would restore majesty to the throne. Promise number four. This is verse, verse 13 again. He shall be a priest on his throne. Now the ESV translations is, is a little vague here. It has, there shall be a priest on his throne, as if to suggest two persons. A priest in addition to uh, a king. But the New American Standard has the better translation, I think, in this case. The context is speaking of one person, the branch. And literally it reads, and he shall be a priest on his throne. Well, you might ask, well, then what becomes of the last part of verse 13, which seems to suggest two persons, doesn't it? And the council of peace shall be between them both. Well, to that I would say, yes, it does refer to two persons. But those two persons are the branch in his two offices as the priest king and the Lord himself. 
I understand it to be saying the council of peace shall be between the one priest king, the branch, and the Lord. Uh, throughout this passage, it, it seems to me that it's speaking of the Lord's temple and that the branch will build, uh, I mean, the Lord's temple that the branch would build, and it is the Lord's throne on which or by which the branch will sit and rule. Uh, moreover, one of the, the few places in the Old Testament that also mentions the rule of a particular priest king is Psalm 110. You can go there if you want. Psalm 110. It's in Psalm 110 that we find the Lord's anointed king ruling on or by, uh, same language that we see, uh, by the, the Lord's throne. And so, for example, in Psalm 110 verse 1 says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, or again, in, in verse 5 of Psalm 110, uh, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So in, one, in verse 1, he's saying, uh, Yahweh sits, um, I'm sorry, the Lord, the anointed one, sits at Yahweh's side. Verse 5 saying, the Lord himself is at the other's side. It's like they're sharing the throne, which we get later on in the book of Revelation. Throne of the Lamb and, the, and, and Yahweh. Um, so I find it remarkable that, that one of the only other places uh, in the Old Testament that develops this idea explicitly of the priest king has the priest king actually sharing Yahweh's throne. Why use the language of peace then? because this is good news for the people. If you look back over Israel's history, many of their kings ruled without any regard for the Lord. There was no peace between Yahweh and the king. And that's a huge problem when your representative rules without regard for Yahweh. Big problem. But here in Zechariah, the Lord is now telling them that when the branch comes to rule, that won't be the case any longer. The branch's rule will actually be Yahweh's rule. Promise number five. This comes in verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off. That could be uh, a part of the Jewish remnant that's still scattered among the nations, but it seems far more likely that Zechariah has the Gentile nations in view. Uh, this is a fairly common way to talk in the Old Testament. Uh, Israel is the nation that's viewed as near to God, near to His covenants. And the Gentile, the pagan Gentile nations, who don't have anything of God's revelation, they're viewed as being far off. 
Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul even uses this idea of being far off to speak about the Gentile nations. Um, he does this in Ephesians chapter 2. And what does he mean there in Ephesians chapter 2 by being far off? It means this. It means to be separated from Christ, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, uh, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be far off. You don't have the Messiah you don't have Israel's inheritance. You don't have the covenants or the promises. You don't have any hope, therefore, and you are therefore without God. That's what it means to be far off. And that was true of all of the Gentile nations. That's the natural state of every Gentile in this room apart from Jesus Christ. We are all far off. But God is promising here that even those who were once far off would actually come, and, and that which is remarkable in itself, and would come and then build the temple of the Lord. Meaning part of the branch's work was to bring those who were once far off near to God's presence, near to God's dwelling place, near to participate in God's work. So those are the five promises bound up with the coming of the branch. He would restore David's throne. He would build God's true temple. He would reign with majestic glory. He would also be a priest who perfectly administered Yahweh's rule on earth. And he would gather the far-off nations to build God's dwelling place. So these promises are incredible. I mean, here in this branch are all of Israel's hopes... And, and here in this branch are, is all of the nation's hope. Uh, it's, it's where everybody's salvation lies. And, and, and just as you think all is well, you get to the end of the passage and you see that the promises are conditioned on Israel's obedience. That's the third part of our passage, the condition of obedience. You see, God requires an obedient covenant partner. Uh, he says in verse 15, This shall come to pass. What's this? Everything he just got done laying out. This shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Wow, that's a downer. Especially when you look at Israel's history. I mean, we know their pattern of obedience. There is no pattern. We have their history, and again and again, our Old Testaments are telling us it didn't go so well for them. And that's also pretty uh, obvious that, 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 uh, from our New Testaments. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, as the reforms under Ezra and Nehemiah after the exile, they were remarkable. But read your, the beginning of your New Testament and John the Baptist is ripping into them again. So even the remnant's obedience after the exile wasn't enough to usher in all these marvelous promises. And, of course, our obedience isn't any better. 
We too have this same pattern of disobedience because we too have the same problem that Israel did, sin. Sin enslaves us and it has been that way since Adam. So how is it then if Israel hasn't diligently obeyed the voice of the Lord, nor has anybody else, how is it that any of these promises would actually come to pass? It's almost as if as soon as God gives you the promises, he's taken them away with the condition. But they come to pass through God's gracious gift of the branch, Jesus Christ. You see, the New Testament identifies this branch as Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.1, he is the son of David. Matthew 16, he's building the new temple, the church. Hebrews 8, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Hebrews 2, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Revelation 21, it's through him that the nations dwell with God. The branch is Jesus, but then linked with all these things is Jesus' obedience for us. God not only promises the coming of the branch and then sends the branch in the person of Jesus, the branch himself meets the condition of the obedience God required. And by meeting that condition of obedience, all of God's promises are fulfilled. God not only commands Israel to be his obedient covenant covenant partner, He then sends the obedient covenant partner in the branch, Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything Israel was supposed to be and more. This is why a lot of times we'll refer to Jesus as the true Israel. He's the only one that came to fulfill all righteousness because he could. You see, God's law required total obedience. Obedience in action as well as obedience in heart. Motivation, desires, longing. But wherever his voice was not diligently obeyed in action and in heart, the law required punishment. So we could say that God's law has both positive demands and penal sanctions. Jesus came to obey God in such a way... That covered both of these things for us. He totally obeyed God's law for us, both in action and heart, and he suffered the punishment for our every infraction of the law. The church has sometimes called this Christ's active and passive obedience to highlight both sides of Christ's vicarious obedience, his obedience in our place. In his obedience to God, Jesus fulfills all the positive requirements of the law for us. And he suffers the punishment the law required for us. Even when that punishment should have fallen on us, it fell on Jesus instead. He not only takes away our punishment in his suffering, he also wins us the right standing before God by his righteousness. 
I mean, if you think about the narrative of the Gospels, and you, you know, we see this crown sitting in the temple of the Lord, waiting for centuries for the crowning of the true king. Jesus came to that temple several times in the New Testament, but never was he crowned. He had to chase out the money changers and everybody else who was abusing the temple. And then we get to John chapter 19. That's where the people crown him. It's the same time when Pilate brings him out on stage and actually repeats the same words that we see here in Zechariah. Behold the man. That's the crown he wore, the crown of thorns. This is how he took away our punishment, by dying on the cross. And by his obedience throughout and even unto death, he wins us the right standing before God by his righteousness. The book of Hebrews highlights this obedience as well. And amazingly, it does so in the context of Jesus' ministry as our priest-king. In fact, it's through Christ's obedience that that he becomes the superior priest-king, now enthroned above all. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that it was after making purification for sins. So there's his role as a priest. He made purification for sins then that it's after that that he sat down at the right hand of majesty. There's his king, and there's God restoring majesty to the throne. I love Hebrews 1.3 because what it's saying is that he wasn't willing to take the throne without bringing his elect with him, redeemed. Or take Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 8 and 10. Although he, he was uh, a son, he learned obedience. So here's the obedience thread we're seeing again. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. And so don't just think of suffering starting at the cross. Think of suffering starting uh, when he was born into this world and when he was going through the temptations all the way through his life. He, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Which means, this order of Melchizedek thing, it means he's not just any old priest, but a priest king who lasts forever. Philippians 2, verse 8, comes close to saying the same thing. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He obeyed God all the way through death. And that death served to take away our punishment. And as a result, God then highly exalted him. God raised him from the dead and he is now seated at God's right hand. 
And you know what that means? It means that from his heavenly throne, the branch is building God's true temple. The branch is right now building God's true temple as the gospel spreads. You could turn with me and see this actually in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 1 already talked about how Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion. What's he doing from there? He is doing what it says in chapter 2, building this temple. But Paul's going to take us back to the cross real quickly in verse 13 of chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Sound familiar? These nations who were once far off. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, so both Jew and Gentile alike, those who were far off, those who were near, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's the picture The picture is that Jesus died on the cross to bring those who were far off from God's promises near to God's promises, near to God. And he is now risen from the dead, and it's because of his present rule that we have become and can be called God's temple, the church. We have become participants in his rule as the gospel binds us together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's all made possible by the faithful obedience of the branch. Gary was right to say earlier that all the promises are yes and amen. In Christ. Why can they be yes and amen in Christ? Because he is the only one that obeyed and did so unto death for his people. So here's how I want to close today. If the branch has come, and if through his obedience and all the promises being fulfilled in him, if if it's all come in the person of Jesus then how do we get to participate in his rule? Well, for starters, we get to participate in the branch's rule by praising God. We get to praise God for sending the branch. 
I mean, we did nothing to earn the work of the branch. We contributed nothing to the work of Jesus except the sin that we laid on his back. And still he came and he loved us and he obeyed for us and he died for us and he rose again for us. And now we get to participate in his present rule by praising him for all that he's done for us. We sing, we give thanks, we eat together in a few minutes. We celebrate what he's done for us and who he is for us still to this day. Hebrews 13, verse 15. This is Hebrews' way of of celebrating the finished work of the priest king. You get to Hebrews 13 and it says, Through him, this priest king, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We also get to participate in the branch's present rule by praying to God. I get this from the book of Hebrews again, chapter 4, verses 15 to 16. Again, the work of the priest king gives us access to God's presence for help. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So are you a mother in need of grace this week? Are you a father that feels like you're on the edge with your children or with the work? Do you battle with same-sex attraction as a believer and need help to escape temptation? Are you a student and fed up with coursework and how these next few weeks are even possible? How's Lockheed going for the number of guys in here that work there and one sister? How's it going? What's the stress like? What about those of you who feel directionless and and really don't know what the Lord has for you next? Maybe you're single and want to be married, but struggle with waiting on the Lord. Or maybe just in general, the fight against sin is making you weary. Folks, Jesus died and rose again to give us access to the throne of grace where he sits in majesty where he's already broken the power of sin, where, where he stands victorious over the devil and his temptations. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Seek his help in prayer. He is glad to give it. I mean, 1 Peter 5 says to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Who's he? He's almighty God, it says in that text. So praise, prayer, another way we get to participate in the branches rule is by building God's temple. You know, we are those who were once far off. When you read Zechariah chapter 6, and you see verse 15, those who are far off, your face, you should see your 
face right there. Those who are far off shall come. And then you go, holy cow, I've come. He's brought me to himself and for a purpose to help build the temple of the Lord. What temple? His church right now. So how exactly do we build his temple? Well, we build God's temple through evangelism. We share the gospel with others. And as we proclaim the Lord's excellency, the Lord changes people into living stones. uh, First Peter two says that are then being built up as a spiritual house in the Lord. We build God's temple by purifying ourselves from idolatry. Second Corinthians chapter six What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Mark Boda puts it well. He says uh, that we, we ought to bring a Christian perspective, conscience and behavior to a world where compromise is often the norm. We also build God's temple by serving one another with our gifts and with our words. You see, Paul loves to use this construction imagery. Uh, And it's all related to to building up the church, building up God's temple. Um, And two two things in particular he mentions, building up the temple with our gifts and with our words. For, uh, For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, after showing how each person's making his contribution in 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 the corporate gathering... In the use of the gifts, he he says, let all things be done for building up, for this idea of erecting a structure, namely God's temple, the body of Christ. Uh, Or Ephesians 4.29, in regard to our speech, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, there are a hundred other ways that the New Testament talks about this, but, but I think you get the point. We build God's temple essentially by bringing Christ's present rule into every little thing of our lives. Lastly, we participate in the branch's rule by looking for his return. By looking for his return. You know, Christ is our ultimate hope that God's final temple will be finished. There's a spiritual temple going up right now, but there's, it's pointing a day to an even greater temple that we see in the book of Revelation in the new Jerusalem. A temple where God's presence isn't in one locale, but it's covering the entire earth. It's a cosmic temple of sorts. Christ will finish building that temple. And so he is our only hope that one day God's kingdom will stretch from sea to sea. And one day that new and final Jerusalem will come where God himself in Jesus Christ will be our temple. And we will dwell with him and he with us and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But until that day comes, our hope cannot be in the temple itself. It cannot be in the church. It cannot be in the elders of your church. 
It cannot be in your favorite podcast preacher. It cannot be in your husband or your wife or your marriage or your degree or your job or your money or anything else. Your hope must lie in the future coming of Jesus Christ. In the same way God's people waited with anticipation in Zechariah's day for the branch to come, we too wait with anticipation for the branch to come. And that's why we eat together now. We come to eat this bread and drink this cup always until he comes again. That is with a view to the second coming of the branch. And his glorious reign finally stretches from sea to sea in a kingdom of peace. So Ben, why don't you come lead us now in the supper?